At the church here, we have a pastoral resident program. And the pastoral resident program, we call it a resident program rather than an internship uh, because it's modeled after the sort of medical resident program. And the idea is, is that this is uh, two years of training here on the church staff where they're paid to be part of the staff, but they're involved and engaged in ministry, but in a special way under kind of the tutelage of the pastors and the staff here at the church to help prepare them for the work of the ministry to which God has called them. Now, like the medical model, only much worse, uh, there are some financial challenges uh, to being in a season of residency. I mean, ministry positions in general don't tend to pay very well. So ministry resident positions, the financial challenges can be even greater. Well, at one time, we had a resident here at the church and uh, he was coming to us out of a human resources background and we had been praying and God had brought his name forward as someone uh, who we should take into this resident program. And so uh, as I sat down with him to discuss how the program worked and uh, what the salary was, uh, he looked at the number and he said, wow, uh, that's going to be really hard for me to be able to meet my budget on this. And so we had a number of conversations about it. In fact, he actually brought in his budget and he showed me uh, what his budget was, uh, just simple basic living expenses. And he was right. He was being very reasonable. He's like, look, I need a few thousand dollars more a year just simply to pay my bills. And again, when I looked at his budget with him, it was a very reasonable request. The problem was is that at that time we were sort of raising money for our resident program outside of the normal budget of the church. We were kind of getting this uh, going and so we were raising money and there wasn't any more money in the budget. There simply wasn't any more money to be able to give. However, he was very persistent and persuasive. And I do remember having been in that exact situation and so I went back to the Lord and I'm like, Lord, what should I do here? I mean, I have great, great sympathy. I know what it's like to be in that situation. And while I was praying, the Lord simply reminded me of the seasons during which I was highly underpaid and how God was so merciful and generous to me along the way. And what a great blessing that was. On the other hand, while I was thinking it through, I'm like, there's got to be some way. There's got to be some way we can find just a little bit more money. I mean, these are reasonable requests. And so I have these sort of two options in my mind, and I'm thinking, what should I do? Well, it's a resident program. It's a training opportunity. And so I decide to, to let him make the decision. And so I went to him and I said, okay, here's a choice I got for you. I've heard what you've said about the salary. I see it. I'm with you. I feel it. Option one... I will go and find you that extra few thousand dollars a year. I don't know where, we'll, we'll find it. Like we'll figure out some way to do this. I'm committed to do it because you're right. This would be a, this would be a good thing to do. Option two, I'll agree to pray with you every day that God would provide for you financially outside of your salary to meet these needs. I said, I'm okay with either one of these. Like I can see, I can see both sides of these. You go away and pray about it and come back and tell me which one of the two you want to choose. He prayed, came back the next day, tears in his eyes, and he said, I want to choose the prayer. And so he and I committed to pray regularly about his financial situation. 
And at the end of his two-year residency, we sat down together and we looked back over all the different ways that God had provided financially and otherwise. And we tried to sort of add up at least the financial piece and it added up to far more than what he had been asking for simply when it came to a salary point of view. And he and I both celebrated together as we looked at God's faithfulness and how God had taken care of him and in the midst of it given peace uh, and comfort as he walked through this. And both of us, he and I, who felt responsible, both of our faiths faiths were strengthened as a result of that. Now I tell you that story because today we're going to look at a tribe among the children of Israel who receive from God something very similar to what my friend, this resident, received from God. It's also something that God is giving to each one of us who are believers in Jesus here this morning. So I'd like you to take a Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 13. Joshua chapter 13, it's page 180 in the church Bibles. Joshua chapter 13, let me tell you where we are in the story of the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book that divides into two halves. The first half is Israel conquering the promised land. And they come in and through the conquest, uh, they uh, take over significant portions of the land that God promised to Abraham, their forefather. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is Israel settling into the land. It's God allotting to specific tribes what their inheritance is going to be and positioning them in the land to live in the land. Now, if you've been reading along in Joshua with us, The first 11 chapters of Joshua, well, that reads like the movie Braveheart or like the movie Star Wars. It's exciting, energizing sort of reading. There's lots of action happening. If you're reading along with us in the second half of the book of Joshua, it's much more like watching C-SPAN. There's not a lot of action. There's a lot of talking and a lot of seemingly mind-numbing detail about how land is being apportioned to different tribes and how that all is playing out. However, even though it does read like C-SPAN, it is the word of God. And God has promised that if we open his word, that he will speak to us through it. And the second half of the book of Joshua, it may be more difficult to see How is God speaking through this apportioning of land? But the promise is that if we're willing to look with eyes of faith, we will see God speaking to us in this section. And so Joshua 13, let me tell you what's going on. It's not super action-packed, but let me tell you about it. At the beginning of the chapter, God says to Joshua, hey, look, We've taken over a lot of this land, and we talked about last week how it took them seven years, but they took over a good portion of the land. But God says there's still a lot more to go. And we don't have time, you don't have enough years left in your life for you to be the one to lead them in the conquest of the rest of the land. We're going to have to leave that for future generations. Joshua, what I need you to work on now is dividing up the land. I need you to give to the people exactly which tribe gets which portions of land. 
And in Joshua 13, Joshua gets to work on that. And he starts with the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan. You may remember, we talked about at the very beginning, before they entered into the promised land that Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh got their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. And if you kind of glance through chapter 13, you see lots of place names as you find out exactly where Manasseh and Reuben and Gad get their territory. It's basically from this spot to that spot and over to this spot and up to here. And he spelled out the boundary lines for the tribe. Now, interestingly enough, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, that's very fascinating. But there's one other tribe that's mentioned in Joshua 13. And the reason why that catches my attention is because it's the tribe that we as Christians are connected to. Of all the tribes of Israel, the Levites, or the tribe of Levi, that's the priestly tribe. They're the ones who are in the service of the Lord. And God tells us in the New Testament that when we become Christians through Jesus, God is making us into a kingdom or a nation of priests. And so we have a connection to the tribe of Levi. So when I hear what Reuben and Gad and Manasseh get, I think, well, that's interesting. But when I hear Levi mentioned, my ears perk up because we are connected to Levi. And in verse 33 of Joshua 13, Levi's inheritance is spelled out. Look at it with me. I guess we'll start in verse 32. That will set the context. This is the inheritance Moses had given when he was in the plains of Moab across the Jordan east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he promised them. Now, this is a very striking verse because if we had read through the whole chapter of verse 13, you would have heard God saying to Reuben, hey, Reuben, you get this area over here. You get these mountains. You get these plains. You get this beautiful chunk of land. He would have said to Gad, Gad, you get this low. You get this hill country. You get these brooks and these streams. You get this amazing piece of land. He would have said to the half tribe of Manasseh, here's what you get, these beautiful fields to pasture your sheep in, places that you can have your homes, these cities. And then he looks at Levi and says, you get nothing but you get God. So to you and I, we look around the world today and there are people in the world who seem to have inherited money or power or land or fame or beauty. But as Christians, our inheritance is God. Now you and I may say, great, that's good news. But honestly, deep in our hearts, sometimes we're thinking, Well, that's bad news. Like, I want some land. Like, I'm sure Levi is sitting there going, wow, those mountains are really nice. Or, whoa, that hill country is really cool. Or, wow, those pasture lands are really great. And when God says to Levi, hey, you don't get any of that. I got something better for for you. You get me. I'm sure at some point Levi was like, woo. (laughs) Couldn't I have you and some mountains? Couldn't I get you and some pasture lands? Couldn't I get, I mean, after all, these other tribes, they're part of Israel. 
Certainly the tribe of Levi must have been thinking, yeah, great, we got God. But what about land? Likewise, you and I, it's easy to look around at others and say, glad that I've got God. But I would also wouldn't mind inheriting the money or the power or the fame or the beauty or the comfort in life. And so what is supposed to be really, really good news sometimes sounds like bad news to us in our hearts. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to explain what does it mean to inherit God. By doing so, I want to show that our inheritance, you and I as Christians, that our inheritance, which is the Lord, is far better than if God had chosen for us money or power or fame or riches or mountains or land or whatever it may be. Now, in order to do that, we need to understand that the Hebrew word for inheritance is closely connected to the Hebrew word for portion. Another way to say it is, Reuben, you get this portion. Gad, you get this portion. Manasseh, you get this portion. Levi, your portion is God. In fact, that's the way Joshua chapter 14 says it. It says that Levi's share or portion is the Lord himself. That's us too. But what does it mean that the Lord is our portion? Well, four times in the Old Testament does this idea that God is our portion show up in a meaningful way. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to read you those four places where God is our portion. That language appears in the Old Testament. And instead of examining them line by line, what I want to do is I want to let you hear them and let them wash over you because in them I think what is presented is the character and the goodness and the meaning of what it means that God is our portion. So you got two choices as we do this. You can either just sit back and listen because I'm going to read some scripture or you can follow along with me and read it for yourself. But these are the words of what it means that God is our portion. If you want to follow along, the first place that language God is our portion shows up is Psalm 16. If you want to follow along, Psalm 16 is page 437. Whether you're looking in your Bible or just listening as I read, what I want you to do is listen to these words and let them wash over you what it means that we are inheriting God or that God is our portion. Reuben, you got that. Gad, you get that portion. Manasseh, you get this portion. Levi and those who are believers in Jesus, I'm your portion. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. 
Lord, you alone are my portion. Did you hear it? You alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Did you hear in their language of guidance and of counsel? Did you hear in their language of protection and provision? Did you hear in their language of joy and of peace, eternal life? This is what it means that God is our portion, that God is at our right hand. No matter what comes at us, we will not be shaken because our inheritance, our portion is God. Second passage, Psalm 73, page 469. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now what's going on here is the psalmist is looking around at everybody else's inheritance, the inheritance of the wicked, the portion that they were allotted. And he's looking at their portion and this is what he thinks they've inherited. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. The psalmist looks around and says, hey, the rest of the tribes, they got money and they got power and they got beauty and they got comfort. And he's looking at what everybody else inherited and thinks, man, I would have liked to have gotten that. Verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. 
And the psalmist is about to tell us what the wicked actually have inherited. It looks like they've inherited a great life. This is what they actually have inherited. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And now he's going to tell us what it means to inherit God. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Do you hear language in there about God guiding, about God directing? Do you hear language in there about God protecting and God providing, about God walking alongside of us, taking hold of our right hand, about God giving us eternal life, that when our hearts fail, when our strength runs out, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn to money or fame or power? The psalmist says, at that place, I can turn to God because he's with me. And no matter what happens, he's my portion forever. Third passage, Psalm 142, page 507. This is the third passage in the Old Testament where the language of God is my portion shows up in a meaningfully significant way. Psalm 142. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Have you ever felt that way? I cry to you, Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Do you hear language in there about God coming to us in the midst of our loneliness when we feel like we've been abandoned by everyone else, when enemies are setting snares for us, when we have no place to turn? God is our portion, means he's a refuge. He's a strong tower that we can run to. He is with us all the time. We can pour out our complaints to him that we will never be shaken because he's walking alongside of us. Last passage. It's Lamentations chapter 3. It's page 672. It was our Advent reading this morning for service. 
Lamentations chapter 3. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. What does it mean that the Lord is our portion? It means that in the midst of the trials and difficulties of life, every day when you wake up, God has already planned some new form of mercy or compassion that while you and I are sleeping through the night, the Lord himself is designing some gift of his grace and his love to give us every day something new, a new experience of his love. God is our portion means that his love is so great for us that he will never cast us off, that he will always be with us, that he will protect us no matter what we go through, that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor demons nor darkness nor anything else in this world, either life or death, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. This is what it means that God is our portion. Reuben, you get those mountains. Gad, you get that hill country. Manasseh, you get those plains over there. Levi, you get God. God is your inheritance. And that's what God is saying to us today. You see, my resident friend made the absolute right choice. Because faced with the choice between inheriting a few thousand dollars more a year in annual salary or getting God, he made the right choice because when God comes, he brings with him provisions and supplies and blessing and generosity. God was far more generous than I ever would have been. That's because what he wanted to inherit was not me, but God. That what God brings with him is peace, eternal life, joy. This is what it means for God to be our portion. It's too easy to look around and see what everybody else has inherited. They've inherited money. They've inherited power. They've inherited fame. They've inherited an easy life. They've inherited all their kids living near them. They've inherited a beautiful marriage. They've inherited all of these things. And to look and say, I wish I was them. And God's saying, what you've inherited is me. And what money going to do for you when you get cancer? And what fame going to do for you when you lose your child? 
What's beauty and power going to do for you when you end up with a divorce that you didn't want? How are these things going to help you when you lose a loved one? How are these things going to help you when Satan has you in his sights and coming after you? What good are all of these other things when you are waking up in the middle of night overcome with panic and fear? What are you going to do when the darkness sets in and the depression becomes so strong? Is money going to rescue? Is power going to rescue? Is fame going to rescue? Are any of the things that the world is inheriting going to be any good at those moments? No. God says, but I will. I'll never leave you. I will never leave you. I will never. Even when you sin, I will discipline you, but I will not cast you off. And my discipline will be for your good. You see that voice that's whispering in our ears saying, oh great, we inherited God, is lying to us. This is the best news you're ever going to hear, is that God himself is our inheritance It's crazy language. We understand the fact that we belong to God. But do you know what this means? It means that God belongs to us. That he's our portion. Yeah, you got that mountain. I got God. Yes, you got those hills. They belong to you. But God belongs to me. That's what it means. The Lord is my portion. He's what I inherited. That brings us to our time of communion. In communion, we have this beautiful opportunity to take a piece of bread and a cup and hold them in our hands. So what we're going to do is in just a moment, uh, bread and cup are going to be distributed. If you're not yet a Christian, I'm going to ask you not to participate in this portion of the ceremony because, and I'm going to explain the symbolism in just a second. When that bread and that cup are in your hand, they represent the person of Jesus, his body and his blood. And the symbolism is you are holding him in your hand because he is your portion. And if you've not yet accepted him as your inheritance, It means in your hands, you're still holding on to money or fame or power or beauty or comfort or whatever else. And in order for him to be your portion, you've got to let go of those other things so that he can fill your hands. And for those of us who are Christians, holding that in our hands is a reminder. Jesus belongs to us. Jesus, the God of the universe. The God who cannot do any evil whatsoever. The God who is always fighting for our good. The God who is more powerful than anything we will ever face. The God who knows the plans he has for us. Plans to bless us and not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope and a future. The God who is stronger than anything in the world. All of the forces of darkness. The God who is himself pure love. He belongs to you. And as you hold that in your hand... And this Thanksgiving weekend, we think about all the things we're thankful for. The thing we're most thankful for is that our inheritance, the portion that was allotted to us, the part of the universe that was divided up and given to us is Jesus. And because he's at our right hand, we will never be shaken. Because he's always with us, we won't be afraid. We don't have to be afraid.
Because he's always with us, he brings with him joy and peace and success. So after the bread and the cup are distributed, hold on to them because they belong to you. And they represent that Jesus belongs to you. After a time of reflection and singing, I'm going to get back up. And we're going to partake of them together, meaning we're going to eat the bread and drink the cup. Because the symbolism continues, not only does Jesus belong to you, but he's inside of you. So that you can never lose him. You can never misplace him. You can never go anywhere without taking this God that we just heard. The Psalm 16, the Psalm 73, the Psalm 142, the Lamentations 3. That God with you wherever you go.